Good morning. Uh, this is Pastor Mike Overstreet at Element 3 Church. And uh, this morning, we are going to continue on in our series, God Part 2. We've taken the last few months to explore the Gospel of Matthew in a unique way. See, what we've been looking at is how Matthew engages Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as a retelling, a reorienting, and a completing of one of the most important stories of the Old Testament, the Exodus story, the story of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt to reshape them into a conduit for his purposes of healing and blessing the nations of our world. A story that Matthew believes is central for understanding who Jesus is and why he came. Because it is Matthew's deep conviction that in Jesus, what we find is God writing a new, ultimate Exodus story. A new story of rescue, finally crashing into our world to heal what's gone wrong and to set the people free. And last week, we began to dive into the climax of Matthew's gospel as we head towards Easter. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the heart of God's people, and he comes at Passover, the festival that celebrates which holiday? The retelling of the Exodus story. And he enters the city as the Messiah, God's long-awaited and promised king that was in the Old Testament was said would come to make things right. And he arrives to call Israel's leadership to embrace the kingdom of God that he's been announcing over the course of his story and to invite them into this new Exodus movement and path in the world. But from here on out, we are going to see how this kingdom message of Jesus, this message of renewal, sets off a series of public confrontations between Jesus and the leaders of Israel, the religious elite at the time, mainly over the story Jesus calls them into and what he believes they have to change to take part in it. Confrontations that over just seven days will lead to his death, executed as a rebel against Rome on a Roman cross. Confrontations that we're going to begin to explore today. But before we start to dive into this confrontation, I actually want to kind of take a left turn. I want to go on a detour. I promise I'm going somewhere. I want to begin with a little trivia about some of the great opening lines in storytelling history. You see, I want to dive into what these opening lines do for our ability to recall stories. We'll get to that in a second. So I'm going to say some opening lines, and I want you at home to name what story they're from. And of course, I can't hear you, that's obvious, but shout them to your family members if they're around, shout them to a growth group member or a friend, or if you're alone, just shout them out loud like a crazy person to yourself. I don't care, I cannot hear you. Well, maybe if you shout loud enough, I can. But for now, just say them out loud. And we're going to start with a freebie. This one's super easy. If you don't get this one, we're not friends anymore. So it goes a little something like this. A long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. What's it from? It's from Star Wars, right? The science fiction classic, the space opera, Luke and Darth Vader, sets off with a bang. Next, this one's a little older. It's from probably your high school days that you learned about it, and I hope you get this one too. A little harder, though. It goes a little something like this. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whole misadventured, piteous overthrows, do with their death bury their parents' Strife. 
the rhymes and the lines might give it away, but this comes from Romeo and Juliet. Two star-crossed lovers from competing families ultimately lose their lives in this conflict. Powerful story. This one's probably a little more obscure for some of you, but it's one of my favorites. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Who knows that one? It's from the master, Martin Scorsese, Goodfellas. The story of a young man who takes up the life of a mafiosa and watches his life unravel when he gets what he wants. Next, uh, this is one of my favorite opening lines in uh, literature. It's from Russian literature, that's a spoiler. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Who knows what tragedy this is from? It's a tragic tale of Leo Stoltoy's Anna Karenina. It's a classic. And finally, I'll give you one more, and I hope this one's also a freebie. Hello, my name's blank. That's a spoiler. You want a chocolate? I could eat about a million and a half of these. My mama always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. This sums up the whole movie. What's it from? Forrest Gump. The great opening line to a man whose life truly is like a box of chocolates. And I start here because each of these highlights, in my opinion, the power of great opening lines when it comes to our ability to recall stories. You see, truly great opening lines have this unique ability to just get lodged in our brains. For years, all we need to do is hear one line and bam, an entire story, an entire universe of characters, themes, events just floods into our minds in a second. Has anyone, did anyone hear one of the lines I just read and suddenly an entire story came into mind? The story of Forrest Gump, the story of Star Wars, Romeo and Juliet. I mean, these are powerful for a reason. With a truly great opening line, all you need to do is reference a few words to make an audience recall the story and find themselves within a much greater tale. And I bring this up because this is precisely what is at the center of the text and the scripture that we're gonna dive into today. See, we're gonna explore this larger confrontation between Jesus and Israel's religious leadership through a powerful scene within it. In this scene, what we're gonna see is that Jesus masterfully uses the power of an opening line to bring forth a story from Israel's past. And in doing so, he places himself in this current conflict with the leaders of Israel at the heart of God's story as it reaches its climax. You see, what he's going to do is he's going to use this recall ability to challenge his audience, to question where they are at in that story God's been writing and what it means that they're responding to Jesus and his kingdom in this oppositional way. And then from that, whether they are fulfilling their calling as God's people, as it was always meant to be, to grow his fruit in the world. And it all centers around a parable of Jesus about a vineyard, tenant farmers, and a rebellion. A parable that summarizes this larger confrontation, what will take place over the next seven days in Jerusalem, and all that it means for Jesus and the kingdom of God in this new Exodus story. A parable that we will focus on and sit with today because it's just powerful. But briefly, for those new to the Bible, what is a parable? See, parables were this common rabbinical Jewish way of teaching. They were these short but deeply layered stories that were meant to capture some of the largest ideas of humanity in our God. And they had a couple key features. 
First, they were metaphorical and symbolic. Parables were never these literal stories. They were always meant to speak to you in symbols and analogies because they're trying to capture something bigger than just a literal moment. So they do that by speaking in metaphor. Second, they were also meant to be universal and timeless. On one hand, they have a layer that does speak to the immediate context that they're told in. But on the other hand, because of how big of ideas that they're tackling, they're also entirely supposed to go beyond their current situation. Parts of parables should speak to us no matter what time we live in. That's what makes them so powerful. And third and finally, they're always meant to be surprising and convicting. Parables are never tame. They are designed in such a way that they tell a story that gets behind your defenses. They usually start in a way that you think you know where it's going, you start to drop your guard and then bam, it has a great reversal, it hits you with a truth that you didn't expect and in doing so what they try to do is they try to make us find ourselves in their world so that when that shot comes, we are confronted and must change how we respond to it. This is what makes parables so powerful and each and every one of these tools is present in the parable we're gonna look at today. See, Jesus is gonna use this parable to engage this confrontation and he's gonna do so in a way that gets behind defenses and shocks his audience and convicts them to think about where they are in the story. So we're just gonna dive into it. We begin in Matthew 21, 33. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. So on one hand, this is a very classic start to a parable. Jesus tells a story that's very familiar to his audience. There's a landowner who owns some land. He makes a vineyard on it. He buys all the tools he needs. He sets it up and then he hires laborers to come work on the land to grow what? To grow fruit. This is all pretty common in Israel's time. You see, they would be landowners who would own land and then they would pay day laborers the daily wage to do the work of tilling it. This is all very common. But there's also something far deeper going on here. You see, this is one of those opening lines that brings forth a much larger story, one that the religious leaders and his audience would have gotten immediately. It's a famous Old Testament story about this guy named Isaiah. It's a fascinating story for Jesus to cite. You see, Isaiah was a prophet in Israel's past, who was sent by God to call Israel's leadership back from a dangerous path. In Isaiah's time, what we find is that Israel had dramatically rejected God's ways, especially when it came to worshiping God alone, but mostly to seeking God's peace and justice in the world. See, they had gone their own way. They had started to treat the poor with oppression. They had started to try to go to war with their surrounding neighbors, and they were going the wrong way. So Isaiah is sent by God to urge them to change course. But the story of Isaiah, like many of the prophets, is that the leaders of Israel refuse to listen. They reject the message. And you might be thinking, so what? Well, hold that in your mind. And now let's look at how Isaiah begins this message to Israel's leaders to call them to change direction. We begin in Isaiah 5, verse 1. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on fertile hillside. He dug it up, he cleared it of stones and planted it with his choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. Does that ring any bells? The same language that Jesus uses to start his own parable. Isaiah continues, then he looked for a crop 
of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad ones? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. So Isaiah responds to the rejection of Israel's leadership with a parable about fruit. He tells this story about a landowner who makes a vineyard and who comes to look for the fruit it should have gone. But does he find the good fruit that it should have grown? Do the vines produce good grapes? No, the, the landowner has done everything he can to grow good fruit from it, but the vines have grown rotting, sick, stinky fruit. So he tears it down. He tears it down. And remember, this is a parable, so this is metaphor. This is symbolism. So Isaiah then goes on to explain his parable in verse seven. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw only bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress or cries of oppression. Do you get it? Isaiah uses this parable to retell the story of Israel that we've explored so much in this series. Think about what this parable is saying. God rescued his people in the Exodus and planted them in the promised land, Israel, this vineyard that he delighted in. There he blessed them, he loved them, he grew them, he cultivated them, and he gave them his instruction. He delighted in them as his vines. But as the parable says, God did that for a purpose. This wasn't just for Israel to stay in relationship with God and just to enjoy the blessing. God planted them for a reason to grow what? To grow his fruit in the world. To be a distinct people who how, who by how they live, show God's character to the other nations around them. To become a conduit, as we've said over and over in this series, for God's healing and his blessing of other people in the world. That's why Israel was created. That's why he planted them. And Isaiah says to Israel's leadership, that is not happening on the path that you are currently on. God set up his vineyard, Israel, to grow his fruit. And look at what he says at the end of verse seven. He says, God looked for justice, but saw only bloodshed for righteousness. But he heard only cries of distress or also translated oppression. And this is powerful in the Hebrew. It said that God looked for the fruit first, sedekah, which is righteousness in English. And what this really is, is it's a powerful term that's very, very, very expansive. It means healthy, equitable, fair, restored relationships. It is a vision of truly right relationships where human beings honor the dignity and the humanity of other humans fully and how they live together. It's living in union with each other and our God in peace as we were meant to. And then the second word is this word mishpat in Hebrew, which is justice. And these are the actions that God's people were called to take when tzedakah or righteousness or right relationships were violated. 
In other words, justice encompassed all the necessary actions that we would take to restore right relationships when we break them, when we harm someone else, when we, when we wound someone else. This is how you reconcile. This is how you make amends. This is how you make it right again. And Isaiah says, God planted Israel to grow this kind of fruit, right? To grow the fruit of mishpat and tzedakah, the fruit of righteousness and justice for his world. And he's looking for that fruit. But what has he found instead? It's not just that he didn't find good fruit growing. It's not that they didn't grow fruit at all. He says, I found rotting fruit, the opposite. Instead of finding justice, I found cries of injustice, sa'akah. And I found instead of righteousness, violence and oppression, mishpat. I mean, this is powerful. And because they've grown this rotting fruit, what does Isaiah say? He warns them, you are on a path of disaster. Turn back. God wants you to return to growing the fruit you were created to grow, to be a part of healing our world. But the leaders ignore Israel's message. This is how the story goes. They ignore the message of the other prophets like Isaiah, and it leads Israel to exactly what Isaiah warned them of. Rather than growing the right fruit, they seek out violence. They seek out injustice. They go to war with their neighbors, and ultimately they go to war with the empire of their day, Babylon. And Babylon crushes them. They're taken into exile. They lose the promised land. They, they lose the vineyard. It's destroyed. And it's one of the most devastating moments in Israel's history. So now, just imagine you are in Jesus's audience. You've grown up with the scriptures. You know Isaiah like the back of your hand. You're one of Israel's religious leaders. And Jesus begins his parable by directly citing this opening line. What do you think happens? That entire story just floods to mind. I mean, this is masterful. He uses this one line to invite them into that story, and then he's going to use it to speak to the story that's going on in the present moment. He's going to use the story from their past. He's going to bring it to their attention, and he's going to use it as the backdrop for the confrontation taking place in front of him. So once again, what does Jesus say? He started with, we have a vineyard, and then the landowner who's looking for his fruit sends servants to collect it. We pick up again in verse 35. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one. They killed another. They stoned a third. And then he sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. He said, they will respect my son. I mean, this is how parables work. It's normal. You're nodding along. You're like, yes, that's very common. And then boom, shocking moment. Instead of giving the landowner the fruit that belongs to him, they have a contract to grow the fruit. The land belongs to him. The fruit belongs to him. The tenants instead assault and kill the servants he sends to them. I mean, this is, this is like an open rebellion. This is entirely insane, right? So the landowner, landowner sends more servants, hoping to reason with them. And the same thing happens. So then he sends his son to them. And I know this doesn't seem smart. This seems like a really bad choice by the landowner. But remember, parables are meant to be metaphor. This is about what is going on in this moment. You see, in this culture, a son was the ultimate representative of a father. It was a, a true embodiment of his presence and authority in a different space where he's not currently at. So in desperate desire to reach the tenants to get his fruit, he sends his son. He says, surely they will listen to him because he reflects me. But alas, we pick up in verse 38. 
But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. I mean, this is madness. That's all I could say. If you're in the audience, you're like, this is insane. The rebellious tenants kill the son and their reasoning is just a total delusion. First, somehow the tenants have decided that the vineyard and the fruit should belong to them, which makes no sense. They were contracted to grow the fruit for someone else. And second, they've come to believe that killing the son will somehow allow them to take his inheritance, which is just crazy, right? What is he? Is he carrying the inheritance around in his pockets? This is just not how inheritance works, right? But reason doesn't matter. See, what's in focus in this story is the response that comes out of the delusion that the vineyard and the fruit that they were hired to grow should belong to them and not the one who gave it to them. They are convinced in that moment, in that delusion, that they can murder the son because that means it will allow them to take it for themselves. It's a very dark scene. And then Jesus closes the parable with a question to his audience, Israel's religious leadership. We look at verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Jesus asks the religious leaders, what do you think should happen to them? And they say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. He will, he will get rid of them and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. They basically say, oh, the landowner's gonna give it to him. He's gonna get him. And then what does Jesus say in verse 42? Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Basically he says to the Bible scholars, have you never read your Bibles? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds because the people thought he was a prophet. And there's like a hilarious moment here at the end. The, re the religious leaders suddenly realize that they're being dissed the whole time. It's about us. Like, have you ever been made fun of? You only got it like 15 seconds into it. That's essentially what happens here, right? Jesus lets them get lost in the story. He makes them enter into it. And he asks them to make a judgment on the behavior of these rebellious tenants. And they do. And then here comes the convicting part. He says, you are the tenants trying to take God's vineyard and fruit, and bam, the whole thing turns. Jesus, like Isaiah, gives the leaders of Israel a message from God. Once again, the vineyard of God, Israel, God's good world is being mismanaged. It's being led astray by rebellious tenants. The leaders of Israel leading God's people straight into yet another conflict with the nations of our world, this time with the Roman Empire, a different Babylon, but one that's just as dangerous, just as fierce. Once again, just like Isaiah and the other prophets, God has sent his servants to Israel, the servants of God. And Jesus, just like them, has come to speak for God and to call them to go a different way. He says, Israel, you are created to grow fruit, the fruit of justice, the fruit of righteousness, not for yourselves, but for others. You are created to live as a conduit of God's peace and healing in the world. And that's not happening on the path you're on. Turn back. But... Jesus knows that the same story will play out. 
to protect their power, the leaders of Israel will reject his message. They will forget the vineyard and the fruit, the land, God's blessing, their status, their wealth, all that they have was given to them by grace and it was always meant to be given away for others. They will decide that it should be theirs and in that delusion, they're gonna try to take it and they're gonna kill this messenger too. But this time, it's not just a servant, it's the son. It's the very embodiment of the father's presence and authority, the one who gave them everything. They will kill the son believing that they can take his inheritance by doing so. And like Isaiah, the refusal of Israel's leadership to change course, to stop growing this rotting fruit of violence and injustice, that path will lead them to disaster. They will go to war in 40 years, and once again, Israel will be destroyed because of the choices of its leaders. But here's what's powerful. In this parable, does God stop being committed to his vineyard? Does he stop being committed to growing the fruit that it was created to produce? No, it says somehow it will still produce the fruit of God. The reason it was created, its purpose is still gonna take place to feed our world. And this is profound. Jesus sets this up by quoting from Psalm 118, this Psalm about an individual undergoing attack from his enemies in the Old Testament. And the psalmist in trust cries out for God's help. He cries out for God to deliver him. And God does that. He delivers him from his enemies. And then the psalmist in the psalm describes and celebrates this moment of God's powerful deliverance with the imagery of stonework. This is what Jesus cites. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. It is an image of a mason inspecting stones, trying to make a building. So he's looking for the foundational stones. He's picking between the good ones and the bad ones. He's accepting the bad ones and reject, or accepting the good ones and rejecting the bad ones. And then the psalmist uses this image to talk about his conflict. He says, I may have seemed like the stone worthy of rejection in the eyes of those opposed to God. But in God's reality, in this upside down vision of his universe, through God's faithfulness, powerful, powerful and impressive deliverance, he actually is made into the cornerstone in the end. He becomes the most important stone for what God was trying to build in our world all along. This is what Jesus cites in this moment of confrontation, rejection, disaster. Jesus says, I trust how my God operates. He says, I will trust that my God will not let evil get the final word. I trust that somehow out of this evil, God will deliver me and work to bring about a great reversal to achieve his purposes in the world. And in that trust, Jesus lays out in this parable what is gonna come in a profound way. The tenants will reject and kill the son. They will reject the cornerstone thinking it's a bad stone, but in that God will work to reverse their decision. And in doing so, he will somehow turn defeat into victory. He will take the son's death and reverse it into a movement of deliverance and resurrection. And through that, the rejected stone will become the cornerstone of what God has been trying to build all along. God will build his kingdom through the rejected son and he will use it to draw the nations of the world into his kingdom, Jewish and Gentile alike, into this new Exodus kingdom community that will do the work that they were always intended to do as God's people, produce God's fruit. The grapes of Sedeca 
and mishpah in the world. And I want to close just by sitting with this parable for a little bit, both as a challenge, but also as this uplifting and powerful source of inspiration. You know, I think it's uplifting because this parable teaches us about how our God operates in his new Exodus story. He is a God that brings about the great reversals that our world needs. He is the God who brings about victory from the deep feet, hope from despair, forgiveness from past wounds, new life from death. This is who our God is. This is how he operates. He is the God of the rejected stones. He is the God that makes the broken and the lost, the people that our world has cast aside, the cornerstones for what he's gonna produce in the world. And that is good news. If you have ever been a rejected stone, I know I have. But there's also a profound challenge baked into this parable. We must remember that this new Exodus movement, this kingdom of God invitation was always meant to create a people who would produce the right fruit. See, what this is all about, the vineyard and the people who work in it are in one business, producing the fruit of Sedekah, Mishpat, righteousness, justice, to feed our world, to show our world who God is, to show our world resurrected life. And there is a deep human temptation inside of all of us to begin to believe that this life, that all we have been given by God is somehow something that actually belongs to us or should belong to us that our healing, our time, our talents, our treasures, our blessings from God, we can become to believe that they're owed to us, that they belong to us, that they are for us. And this parable is so clear, y'all. Jesus sees that as a truly dangerous path. He believes that on that path, you are gonna miss what it means to live in the kingdom of God and to produce your fruit of right relationships and justice. And he says in that moment, you have to change course. That path is one that will rob you of who you are. It will make you miss the sun right in front of you. It will make you miss your purpose in this world. You'll miss why you were given the vineyard and the fruit in the first place. And Jesus believes that when we start to think it belongs to us, that these gifts we've been given, while well, we forget why we are given them and we stop growing the fruit of the kingdom for others to eat. We stop drawing the people in to this new Exodus story. We just forget our purpose. And Jesus says, it was never meant to be for you. It was always meant to be a blessing to give away. So grow the right fruit. And I just think combined, this is a powerful, beautiful parable for where we are right now. Our God has given us what we need to grow his fruit, to be part of working with him, to heal his good world by how we exist within it. That is an invitation given to us, broken people. And that is powerful. But it's up to us to go about doing the work needed to grow that. But here's the good news. I believe that if we find the God of the great reversal, the one who accepts the rejected stones, if we trust in him and if we commit to his story, what he tells me in this is that through us, he will grow the kingdom fruit that our world needs. And I don't know about you, but our world right now could use some new fruit. That's our purpose. That's who we are. And that is good news. Amen.